Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. The most listened to internet radio show in the nonprofit sector, dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to modern day fundraising success, and practical advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to the use of social media and how to make your nonprofit green. Guests on The Nonprofit Coach are leaders in their field who share tips and trade secrets for nonprofit management and fundraising success. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. This is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Click on Radio. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And welcome here to the latest edition of The Nonprofit Coach. Uh, today is uh, September 24th, uh, 2013, and I'm coming to you live from San Diego today. I'm here attending the Council on Foundations Community Foundations Conference. We've got a full show for you today, a lot to cover. As the announcer said, this is a live call-in show, so you can call in and ask questions when we get to our page two expert today. You also can join us over in the chat room. I see a few folks over there. Uh, or you can email me your questions at tedhart at tedhart.com. As always here on The Nonprofit Coach, we start with page one news. Follow along in the radio links today at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. First up here comes to us uh, from Philanthropy 2173, the Philanthropy blog spot. And Lucy Bernholz points out to us that, in her opinion, the 990 has gotten one step closer to actually being useful. Uh, we're still waiting for the open data movement to take hold within the IRS and for the annual tax reforms for nonprofits and foundations known as the 990s and 990PFs, to be made machine-readable, searchable, and downloadable. But until we get there, the Foundation Center has given us a very useful tool uh, called FDO Free, which allows you to run a free keyword search across all 990PFs in the Foundation Center's massive database. Uh, you can find that over in the radio links. You can read all about that in the link directly to the FDO free uh, searchable uh, database. So all of that is available to you today in the radio links at tedhart.com. Uh, next up, this is that time in uh, our monthly calendar here on the Nonprofit Coach uh, that I have the pleasure of welcoming the fine folks from GuideStar back here to the Nonprofit Coach for the GuideStar Minute. Lindsay Nichols, thank you for coming back to the Nonprofit Coach. What's going on over at GuideStar? Thanks for having me, and thanks for, I'm, I'm glad you're back. We missed you while you were gone. Um, we've had a really exciting uh, past month or so. We just launched our new GuideStar Nonprofit Compensation Report. So that looks at 2011 compensation across the country in different focus areas, in different metropolitan statistical areas. So there's a wealth of data in there, and it's available now. Um, 
And, of course, we're still trucking on the Overhead Myth campaign, which I know you know a little bit about, Ted. And we have more than 2,500 people who have pledged to end the focus on overhead. So it's uh, it's been a really exciting campaign, and we're thinking about what to do next. Well, that's terrific. Well, give us a little bit more information on that. As you know, uh, we've been away on our summer hiatus, so our listeners have been uh, catching up on podcasts. But the latest news, of course, coming from GuideStar, we're just back uh, now for the fall. So bring us up to date on that campaign. And, of course, we do have a link in the radio links today directly to GuideStar.org. I appreciate it. So uh, Jacob Harold, GuideStar CEO, joined Ken Berger, the president of Charity Navigator, and Art Taylor, the president of BBB Wise Giving Alliance, to pen a letter to the donors of America asking them to really end the focus on administrative expenses as some kind of metric of nonprofit performance. We all know in the, in the sector that there has been this undue scrutiny on how much money is actually going to investing in themselves as nonprofits versus investing in programs. And we know, GuideStar knows, that's not any kind of indication of success or impact. We really think the entire sector needs to focus on the nonprofits that are, are making progress, that are really trying to achieve their missions, and that's not a simple ratio. You can't just look at that ratio and determine what that really means. So there's this letter to the donors, and there's a website called overheadmyth.com that the three organizations um, came together and are trying to get this message out nationwide. And it's it's been wildly successful, and we're really trying to think about what the next step is going to be. So I, I would love to hear what your listeners think, and um, they're welcome to email me, or if they talk to you, I'd love to know what they say. Well, terrific. Well, how can they email you and share their comments on this important movement? Absolutely. So my email is lnichols, L-N as in Nancy, I-C-H-O-L-S as in Sam, at guidestar.org. And they're welcome to email me anytime. We're really thinking about how we could work with funders who really have been setting a metric and asking nonprofits to reach a certain uh, uh, overhead ratio to work with them to change that dialogue. So, um, again, if there's any advice there or other, uh, you know, insight, I'm happy to hear it. Well, I think this is uh, this is uh, important, uh, and I think it's going to take some time because uh, a lot of people do focus in that area rather than focus on outcomes and impact. Uh, but I but I will say, and I'm sure that this uh, has occurred to everyone else. I I think often on this issue, nonprofits are our own worst enemy because there are so many nonprofits out there that go out of their way to say 100% of your money will go towards whatever. Uh, negating the fact that there has to be top-notch accounting and management of those funds and management of those programs. And we sometimes send the message that somehow that magically happens and appears uh, and uh, audit trails and, and uh, you know, very good finances follow all of that, whereas and it costs nothing. And, of course, Absolutely. there's staff that doesn't get paid, and, and none of that costs anything. So I think that oftentimes nonprofits are our own worst enemy and not sharing why these investments in strong nonprofits are important, uh, and we make it seem like it is magic. So oftentimes the public expects that it is somehow magic. Absolutely, that we could not agree more. I mean, we are absolutely our own problem in this case in many ways, just in the communication. There was a really good blog post from Sherston Erickson, who was a fellow with us for a while, who talked about how she didn't invest in her nonprofit and therefore the nonprofit had to close. I mean, there are really nightmare scenarios out there that if you don't invest in yourself as a nonprofit, you can't grow. Now, that doesn't mean you know, lining pockets, it does mean investing in the technology and the people and the space that you need to be a strong nonprofit, as you just said. So absolutely, we need to change the dialogue, we need to change the, the communication around this as much as others do as well. Well, and as you know, today on the show, our page two experts, Dr. Sumerson Raymond, the winner of the Women of Excellence and Achievement Award, she's absolutely brilliant, and I'm going to bring this up to her. Uh, because she's one of the super bright thinkers in our in our sector, uh, and I'm sure that she's going to have some advice and counsel on this topic. But certainly finding a way to help uh, donors understand how they can measure 
Uh, and again, because all nonprofits are not the same and, and are, do not manage themselves exactly the same, it is hard to find that one super metric, but at the same time putting an emphasis on the donor's evaluation of impact and outcomes is an important shift in the sector. So I'm, I'm glad that's coming up, and uh, thank you, GuideStar, uh, Lindsay Nichols in particular, for bringing that to our attention, making sure that my listeners know that that is going on. This is not a magic wand. This is not going to happen overnight. But I think the fact that, uh, that these fine folks have started the dialogue um, is a very important step. Thank you so much, Ted. Thanks for letting us get the word out. Absolutely, absolutely. So we'll, uh, we'll catch up again next month uh, for the GuideStar Minute here on the Nonprofit Coach. That was Lindsay Nichols uh, from GuideStar sharing with us this month's GuideStar Minute. Uh, we're now back on uh, page one news, and the next uh, topic in the page one news uh, is the engagement pyramid for email. Uh, this comes to us uh, by uh, Kiwi Miller, uh, who is an author, trainer, and consultant, and this is from Kiwi's nonprofit communications blog. And what she starts off by saying is, I'm a visual person, so I love to see concepts and processes mapped out. Uh, so she is drawing attention to the psychological hierarchy of an email campaign. As an email marketer, uh, people on your email list are subscribers. Your pinnacle um, is, of course, engagement, and this uh, helps you in a very visual way to focus on uh, each of the steps and how you build those relationships. So I wanted to share that with you because I think a, a number of you are probably visual as well. Uh, this has a link to the psychological hierarchy of an email campaign. I hope that will be helpful to you as you're thinking of your year-end email and offline uh, campaigns. Uh, next up here on the Nonprofit Coach, next week is a big week uh, here on the Nonprofit Coach, and we've got Melanie Mathos here from uh, BlackBot and the BBCon Conference uh, to share with everybody why is, Melanie, why is next week uh, such a big deal here on the Nonprofit Coach? Well, we are very excited to have uh, you there broadcasting live from BBCon with a special edition of the show uh, on Tuesday, October 1st at 1230. And it's a little later because we have you busy all day speaking uh, about online strategies and tools and trade secrets right before that. So we're really excited to have you there. Well, I'm excited to uh, be back uh, at BBCon, as you said. Uh, for all my listeners to mark on your calendar that we will be starting a half hour later, uh, 12.30 Eastern will be the show start next week, uh, and we'll go a half hour later, so it'll be a nine, fully 90-minute show live from the floor of BBCon. Uh, but for, for some of my listeners who, who may not have uh, uh, heard you folks last week or, or maybe are not familiar, let's go all the way back. What is BBCon, the Black Bond Conference for Nonprofits? What are you trying to accomplish, and why is the nonprofit coach going to be there? Sure. So BBCon uh, this year will be our 14th annual conference, and we're going to be holding it at the Gaylord National Harbor Hotel from September 29th to October 1st. And the conference has really evolved into uh, a full-blown nonprofit technology conference full of thought leadership sessions, best practices, nonprofit professionals from all over the world. Uh, it's really interesting to see the profile of attendees we have this year, about 2,000 uh, so far. So we're excited to have you there to uh, interview some of the folks that are speaking at the conference. And we just added our chief scientist, Chuck Longfield, to talk about uh, how nonprofits can reach their potential. So that will be a really exciting topic. Uh, and we're just happy to have you there involved as a speaker as well to share your knowledge with our attendees. Well, thank you. Well, I'm honored uh, to be invited back to be a speaker and, of course, to have the nonprofit coach there as a way for us to draw attention to the incredible lineup uh, that you have every year, but in particular this year is incredibly impressive. Uh, so for those listeners, uh, there is still time uh, to be able to get to BBCon. Uh, how can they register? We are providing a link in the radio links today. Uh, I know they can go directly to BB Conference. Uh, dot com. But give us some uh, a little bit of background in terms of uh, how they might register and uh, anything they should know about that. Sure. So registration is open online for three more days, and today we are offering your listeners a special discount of $125 if they enter the discount code TEDHART when registering. So we're That's really excited perfect. to extend that special promotion. 
Well, that's uh, thank you so much. You uh, offered that on the show last week. It's very nice that you're uh, extending that um, to uh, uh, to our listeners. So you, as you're saying, that's for three more days, going directly to bbconference.com, entering the discount code Ted Hart. Uh, they will get a discount of $125 and will be able to participate in the full uh, BBCon conference. Yeah, that's 179 breakouts, two keynotes, and lots of networking fun. So we're really excited. Uh, everyone around here is just buzzing with excitement, getting ready to head up to D.C. You've got some exciting uh, general sessions and plenaries as well, some of the uh, luminaries that are coming to uh, uh, join you at BBCon. Can you give us one or two examples? Sure, definitely. So uh, just last week, one of our keynotes released his book, uh, walk in their shoes, how can one person change the world? Uh, his name's Jim Zalkowski. He was on the Today Show last week, so if you want to see a sneak peek, you can check out the BlackBod Twitter account. There's a link there at BlackBod. Uh, and then also Karen Worcester from Reeds Across America. It's a super inspiring story about how one company's philanthropy initiative spun off into a nonprofit, and they've experienced really tremendous grassroots growth. So it's uh, kind of both sides of the pr- spectrum on uh, organizational growth and how you can really ignite your mission. So we're really excited to hear their stories as well. That's terrific. Melanie Mathos, thank you so much for uh, coming back on The Nonprofit Coach. Um, I look forward to seeing you and being at BBCon. Uh, Next week's show here on The Nonprofit Coach will be live from your conference floor. Uh, Melanie Mathos, thank you for coming uh, coming from BlackBot on The Nonprofit Coach today. Thank you so much. See you next week. See you next week, and I'll see my listeners. Hopefully many of you will come uh, to BBCon, and I'll get a chance to uh, meet you there. So uh, if you are a listener, make sure that you seek me out either at the education session that I'm providing or come over to the conference center uh, and uh, watch the live production of the Nonprofit Coach radio show right there from BBCon. Uh, Next over here in page one news, uh, comes to us from Search Mojo. Uh, Search Mojo has a, a very nice presentation, uh, well worth the watch. Uh, the state of Google marketing for nonprofits and associations. Uh, this comes to them from uh, comes to us uh, by the Janet Miller, uh, who is the president and CEO of Search Mojo. Uh, don't miss this. Over in the radio links, you're going to be able to uh, watch this really terrific presentation. Uh, if you are at all interested in Google and marketing for your nonprofit. Last thing I have here uh, on page one before we get to our page two expert today uh, is to remind you that we do host a group over on LinkedIn. It is called People to People Fundraising. You can find a direct link at our education site, p2pfundraising.org. And as of uh, right now, we have 2,473 members uh, who are actively participating in the LinkedIn group hosted by the Nonprofit Coach radio show known as People to People Fundraising. And with that, it is time for us to welcome our Page 2 expert. It is without a doubt that Dr. Susan Raymond is one of the smartest people in the nonprofit sector. Uh, She is the winner of the Women of Excellence and Achievement Award. Dr. Raymond is Executive Vice President of Research, Evaluation, and Strategic Planning for Changing Our World. Susan leads research on all aspects of philanthropy and economic and demographic change, as well as strategic alignment of new social finance investment strategies for nonprofits and social enterprises. Her most recent book on philanthropy is Nonprofit Finance for Hard Times, Leadership Strategies When Economies Falter. This was published uh, by John Wiley and Sons, and she is here with us live. Uh, Dr. Raymond, thank you so much for joining us again here on The Nonprofit Coach. Thanks for having me, Ted. It's very kind of you. It is wonderful to have you here, particularly at sort of these crossroads uh, in the nonprofit sector. You, uh, as I as I shared with uh, my listeners, but I'm sure that your reputation precedes you. Uh, you are one of our deep thinkers. You're one of those people that help sort through all of the uh, various uh, data sets and help us 
understand what is real, what is going on. And today you want to help us talk about changing economies and how nonprofits uh, can succeed. So why don't we start off with, um, from, your, from yourself, sort of explaining how you see your work. Uh, then I want to get in specifically um, to uh, discussing uh, your current work. Thanks, Ted. Um, right. Just about, to, well, now I guess three or four months ago, um, uh, Wiley published a new book um, called Recession Recovery and Renewal. Um, the nonprofit finance book was written in the beginning of the recession, the very, very early days of the recession. And this current book now looks at the changing global uh, economy and what the recovery really means for nonprofit strategy. You know, I always say that it's sort of a bromide anymore to say that um, there's a rapid pace of change in our world. It's sort of a tautology, but um, I, but really motivated the book was not not the pace of change, but the consequences. I mean, I, I think that the this we're we're going to an economy that is unlike the economy we came from, and that that has significant implications for nonprofits and their strategy. And I think that. Um, one of the one of the most important things that that I've learned over doing this book um, is the opportunity to talk to um, a number of our sister agencies, sister Omnicom agencies. Changing our world is part of the Omnicom group, and our sister agencies work in the area of communications and branding. and And part of what is I think important for nonprofits going forward is to think and very carefully about their communication strategy, what we're finding more and more and more in uh, a very um, cluttered messaging world, if you will, and very rapid communications of messaging, is that the, the fundraising uh, strategies of nonprofits have to be deeply integrated into their communication strategies. And so in the book, there are uh, about 12 case studies of how communications um, have been important in the nonprofit sector to specific nonprofits. They're co-written by our Omnicom sister agencies and the nonprofits that they help. So I think one of the key issues in front of us is, is both the changing nature and expectations of donors and the changing nature and locus of wealth um, within a changed global um, economic structure and then overlaid on top of that the, the tremendous importance of communications in this market. And, and how um, uh, how important has or, or how influential has social media, the rise of social media, been in, in making that kind of change? Because it, you're identifying, um, I think, uh, a movement that was afoot before social media but maybe accelerated um, at the advent. No, I mean, I, I think it's it's obviously tremendously important for everyone. You know, I, I always say that <clears throat> um, the nonprofit sector will be shaken to its boots um, once the nonprofit sector is on Yelp, when people who are served by the nonprofit sector have the opportunity um, to comment on whether or not the person who served them soup was nice or not. Um, that will have tremendous implications because donors donors will not only know the work that you do, they'll know what people think of you. And so social media is not just important. You know, we, we talk about it in terms of fundraising and, and the traditional space, if you will. And, and we speak as though social media is simply a vehicle in a traditional space of fundraising. It's actually not. It, it is a mechanism that is ultimately going to um, going to uh, spread word about performance and not just technical performance. You know, did you in fact meet that metric that you set out? But actually, what people actually think of you, how they feel about you, and and as the corporate world has found, it, that's that's not a set of of comments or a dialogue that is going to take or should take place or could productively take place without the nonprofit themselves being part of the dialogue. I mean, no company just lets social media sort of run rampant across its brand. They, they're they constantly on the social media commenting themselves about what's being said. Um, and so this has huge implications. Is part of your concern or, or your advice that 
that while all of that is happening, many nonprofits don't have an answer to it or don't have a strategy for it? Oh, they don't have a strategy for it, and they probably don't have the skills for it either. It's another theme in the book is skills. What are the implications for nonprofits in their skill structure for these these new strategies, these new needs for communication, for programming, for outreach um, to a new industrial structure, a new wealth structure? Is this because of traditional structures that nonprofit management is maybe not taking this all that seriously yet? Well, you know, I don't know. I don't want to make a judgment about about that, but about the seriousness. But what I what I what I believe is that the the, the commercial sector, the the companies, begin with an outward line of sight. What do the what does the customer want? What does the customer think? And then they turn internally. The nonprofit sector begins with an inward line of sight. What is my mission, my vision, my theory of change, my program? And then, only then, an outward line of sight. And I think that the reason it's a slow response is because we, the nonprofit sector does not have a natural outward line of sight. And somehow we have to make this combination of market and mission in, in a much more effective way. Well, I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's interesting you brought up uh, Yelp as as sort of a, a, a benchmark of uh, of change for the nonprofit sector, and there there are many nonprofits who are currently reviewed on Yelp. I'm looking uh, right now, just by way of example, of nonprofit organizations in the San Francisco uh, area. Uh, and there are hundreds of nonprofits that have been evaluated on Yelp. The number one rated uh, a charity is a, an organization called One Brick, and the second is San Francisco and Marin Food Banks. And that one charity has 117 reviews uh, and has a five-star rating uh, over on Yelp. So from from what you're saying is that 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 that, that by itself represents a significant uh, touch point for nonprofits in that, that that train has left the station, Yelp is starting to be used, and now these public reviews of your work are out there, whether you're aware of it or not. Right, exactly. And, and, and it will roll forward whether you influence it or not. And if you don't engage in the conversation, then the conversation will go wherever the conversation will go. Um, exactly. And so you, you have to not just observe it, you have to be engaged in the conversation. Well, you've identified such an important topic. This is this is one that I've raised many times because in, in consulting with nonprofits on social media, oftentimes one of the first topics that's brought up is, well, that maybe we don't want to do that because uh, as soon as we start with a Facebook page or whatever, someone might say something mean, they might say something untrue, they might say something that we don't agree with, uh, so it's almost like if we ignore them, they will go away. And the point that I've always made is they're going to say it anyway. The question is whether or not you have a voice and you have the ability to influence those opinions. And that's, I think, part of what nonprofits don't understand is that this is not something that you draw towards you. This is something that is natural and happening. Right, exactly. Uh, you know, it's it's, um, so how did this get to your your important work? Um, and I'm so glad that you've identified this because it, this I think is absolutely the the crux of where uh, nonprofits need to be thinking. But I'm I'm really intrigued by your connection to economic forces um, and how nonprofits can prepare for the future. You know, it's 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 one of the it's something that I think is very important, and I'm, I'm constantly struck by the degree to which nonprofits don't track and understand their larger economic operating environment. Um, the, the industrial structure in this country, the industrial structure globally is changing. My guess is the industrial structure in most communities is changing. Um, and, and most nonprofits are ob oblivious to the fact. We, we just worked with a nonprofit that was was oblivious to the fact that an entirely new technology corridor was being created 
um, by public policy in its community and that that was going to fundamentally change the nature of the economic leadership and therefore fundamentally change the nature of people who were going to be candidates for the board. And and the, the degree to which that that is just so important right now, fundamentally, and, and then the industrial structure is changing the structure of wealth, the global structure of wealth. There's a gender change in terms of wealth. 43% of those who hold $1.5 million of assets or more in the United States are women. Women will be the largest number of millionaires in Britain within the next five years. More wealth in parts of Europe is held by women than by men. So the entire gender structure of wealth is changing. The generational structure of wealth is changing. You know, 20 years ago, um, over 50% of those under the age of 40 who were high net worth individuals had inherited their wealth. Today, 64% earned it. That's a very different structure and set of assumptions driven by a very different economic structure. And we don't have in the nonprofit sector, let alone within nonprofits, in the sector, we don't have enough economists. We don't have enough industrial analysts um, to, to be able to track this change and then input this change into nonprofit program strategy as well as funding strategy. And, and is your concern and the reason for the book and the reason that you're raising these issues is that nonprofits are are not only not planning for this change, that they're wholly unaware or or worse ignoring. Yeah, I think that I think they're unaware. If they are aware, I think they don't know what to do with it. There, there is there continues to have to be, and, and it's it's admirable. Okay, I don't want to be critical. It's admirable and it's valuable. There is still this view that the nobility of the work, the nobility of the work will drive the future. And there's nothing wrong with it. And the nobility of the work is absolutely true and valid. But we are now in a, 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 a global economic and generational change where the fact of the charity is assumed. Now the question is, what do you have to say for yourself? What is it that I should invest in? How will what I am investing in relate to sustainability and self-reliance on the economic front? And, and those and, and questions are questions that require data. Yeah, absolutely, and, and you've been so brilliant over the years in bringing data forward, but not just in data sets, but helping us in the analysis of that data. And I, and I think one of the, the things that you just brought up in terms of the nobility of work, and of course, you know, that is that is why we're in the nonprofit sector. I mean, uh, many of us, you in particular, could make a lot more money um, you know, working for a Fortune 500 company, but there's something about the nonprofit sector that is noble, um, and needs to remain noble. However, what comes into the factor here is the incredible competition uh, for a relatively stagnant uh, donor base. So not to say that that's not changing, um, it, but as you're identifying, the, the face of that, that donor public is changing dramatically. And, and just you know, back it was several decades ago, I think it was back, um, I could be wrong here, back in the 50s or 60s, um, there were only about 20,000 charities in the United States. And now we're talking about well over a million five. So there's just a lot more topics, a lot more areas, a lot more charities, all of which have to raise money, all of which are trying to recruit board members. So it's just harder in the competition. So you have to be sharper in your message. I think that's absolutely right. But I will say, Ted, that I think one of the most exciting things right now is that there is a whole new category of resources flowing on to the societal commons that never would have flowed as pure charity. And it's being driven by young philanthropists with thinking about new ways of financing change. And this whole social finance space, the, the, the bond strategies, the equity strategies, um, the investment strategies, the PRI strategies, 
all of those things are bringing new kinds of resources onto the societal commons. So while it is true that the rate of growth of giving is lower than the rate of growth of the number of nonprofits, so there is intense competition in the traditional space, there is this aborning social finance area that is bringing new resources into this space, but they are resources that are driven by a market view and a finance view and trying to blend mission and market. And, and, and I think it's a very exciting time to think about nonprofit finance because of that. And it also comes back to the earlier uh, message that we heard from GuideStar in terms of this renewed focus on impact because certainly investors are going to be looking for impact and outcomes. Um, right. So can, can I, I think you were and there's a danger to... there, right? And there's a danger there. And 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 I'm you know I'm an economist. I'm a big fan of impact. I'm a big fan of data and you know everything else. But the one danger here is that an overemphasis on impact will make the philanthropic sector and therefore the nonprofit sector risk averse. And the money will flow to the problems we know how to solve. And there are a whole bunch of problems whose origins we don't even understand, let alone know how to solve. Hatred. You know, what are you going to do about that? And if you make philanthropy and social finance risk-averse, then there's a whole category of problems that are not going to be addressed because you will not be able to demonstrate quantitative impact. So I think we have to have a significant dialogue between the nonprofit sector and the philanthropic sector to talk about what do we do with risk. So what replaces, uh, I, I know, I think you could hear the page one news and Melanie Mathos shared this movement um, that GuideStar is part of to, right. to, I think, try to change the dialogue. But but I think in trying to change that dialogue away from overhead, you have to have an answer to what are you changing the dialogue towards. Right, right. And I think that it's you know, it's 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 operations and execution. Um and I think actually we're we're in a period where it's gonna be um at least I, I don't know, I, I listened to to the exchange, but I do know that there's an additional, if you will, layer onto this problem, and that is sequestration. That right. what the, the organizations dominantly, unfortunately, dependent on government financing up to this point, have a GNA, have an approved GNA structure, um, general administrative cost structure under federal funding or state funding, even. By and large, that GNA structure is higher than the quote-unquote overhead rates um, most foundations would approve. And so we have this real problem here that the more private philanthropy you get at a lower overhead rate, the more you endanger your GNA structure in the public sector. And so this whole question of how do you handle um, operating costs and capacity in a changed world is not only important vis-a-vis private philanthropy, but for those nonprofits with public funding, it has huge implications on the public side. Susan, uh, we're going to take just a quick break, and when we come back, the topic that you just brought up, I do want to ask you to delve a little bit deeper into that today on the front of the Chronicle of Philanthropy, the topic is uh, the worst may be yet to come from the current U.S. budget impasse, and I think you're going to have some insight into that for us. So uh, we will be right back after this break. program break. Just a reminder, next week we will be live here on the Nonprofit Coach from BBCon. This is the Blackbaud Conference uh, at the National Harbor in Washington, D.C., special time starting at 12.30 p.m. Eastern, and we will go for 90 minutes next week. Uh, after that, October 8th, that is on October 1st, October 8th, uh, we are back here with Penelope Burke and her wonderful research uh, Cygnus Donor Research, and she's going to have the latest 
information on what donors are looking for, what they think, and what they give to. Uh, so make sure that uh, you join us back here on October 8th. Uh, and uh, with that, we're going to head back over to our page two expert today, Dr. Susan Raymond. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. We are back here live with Dr. Susan Raymond here on The Nonprofit Coach. Uh, Susan, um, the Chronicle Philanthropy says the worst may be yet to come from the budget impasse. Uh, talking about uh, economic problems facing the nonprofit sector, uh, what do you think is going to happen, and what does everybody <laughs> need to do about it? <laughs> what is going to happen? That's the 24. What it, what it used to be called the $64,000 question. Right, um, exactly. What is going to happen? Um, well, let's take it in two parts. Um, let's take the sequestration issue first, and then let's take the current debate on the Hill. Um, the sequestration is $1.2 trillion with a T dollars over 10 years. Um, most agencies have cut what can be cut um, at this point in terms of payroll, you know, efficiency, um, contracting, um, you know, sort of uh, management, et cetera. Um, the second year is going to be very hard. The out years are... Um, are going to be significant. So we've, most agencies, most federal agencies have done what they can do in, in, and preserve the fundamental structure of their agencies and structure of their programs. Um, now we're going to have to start um, moving into payroll. Um, uh, one of the biggest costs is obviously retirement costs. That's a huge, huge amount of money. Um, and so and we can't do anything about that because that's contracted. So it's going to have to come out of programs and it's going to have to come out of new programs. And so you can expect years, you know, two and a half, and especially year three onward, to be um, to be very significant in terms of budget cuts. Um, now, with regard to the current... To, this, this is going to affect directly uh, what can be funded in the nonprofit sector. Absolutely. I mean, uh, some, some agencies, USAID, the International Development Agency, for instance, has actually moved more money this fiscal year into the nonprofit sector than before, and the way they've done that is by squeezing squeezing the intermediary contractors back and moving the money more directly out to nonprofits without you know contracting intermediaries. But you can only do that once. You know, okay, fine. So you did that once. Now what are you going to do? You know, when the next trash comes around. Um, so the, the years three and out are going to be very significant for nonprofits. They're also going to be significant, you know, for for-profit contractors as well, because you'll be able to buy less stuff, you know, fewer fewer pens and pencils, and uh, so it will have a significant effect on the for-profit economy as well. Um, at, as and of course that comes back around to nonprofits one way or the other, you know, because those companies, those funders are going to be squeezed. Um, by the federal procurement process, and so their ability to donate is going to be smaller. Um, it's all of a piece. It's like a balloon. You know, you squeeze one part, and it, and it comes out the other part. With regard to the current impasse on the Hill, I mean, I don't, I don't think anybody knows um, what's going to happen. I, I, I continue to be foolish enough, you know, to believe that reason will out, and uh, people will figure out that that. They're just going to have to start, you know, stop shouting at one another. But I don't see a lot of evidence that that's the case. Um, I, I can't, you know, I I am, uh, I, I think we're at a point here where what we really need is um, an extraordinary statesman to step forward. And, uh, and I, I don't know who that is. Well, I think certainly um, the, the the governments, the, the different sides of government, uh, seem to be invested in the argument more than in a solution. You know, it, it, it's true. Um, you know, I I, uh, 
I've spent some time in Washington, you know, and 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 I, I've yeah, I've, I've worked on the Hill. I've I've worked at AID. I've been a um, I've been advisor to three foreign assistance reform commissions, um, and, and I've seen a lot of disagreement. <laughs> I've seen a lot of um, uh, fundamental um, differences of opinion. But I don't think I've ever seen anything that is so uh, where, where where the ingoing position of both sides is that something is non-negotiable. You know that that uh, politics is the art of compromise, and and right now I don't see a lot of really good artisans on the landscape. Well, well, and in fact, there are some in government that that feel that any compromise at all. Um, is a uh, weakness to their side. So it, 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 where it used to be statesmen would be elevated by their ability to create good government. Uh, it seems that there are far too many people who are um, more interested in sort of destroying anything that looks like government as opposed to realizing that we need it and it needs to work well. Well, you know, and, and it's interesting because you know, I, and I and I don't say this in a partisan way. You know, I, I'm I'm neither Democrat nor Republican. You know, and I'm not saying this from a, I, from a partisan point of view, right? But but what I'm what it, my observation is that any longer the only acceptable score on either team is five to nothing. I know I can win at three to two, but that means you would score two points. And it is an anathema to me that you would score two points. So the only acceptable score is five to zero. And once right. you've got but both sides four. saying the only acceptable score is five to zero, you don't have much of a game. Right. Well, and, and I think it, it, I, and I think you're right, but I think it may even be worse than that. I think it's even a point five on your side is cataclysmic. <laughs> that that right. I, I right. can't even I can't even split it in any way that it, unless right. I get all of the cookies. Unless I right. completely get my way, uh, it's not fair. It's not. It's not even fair if if you if uh, yeah. So so well, we're in it's agreement like children, on that. Right? It's, it's like middle yeah. school. <laughs> yeah, but 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 what we did at that point for our children is we taught them fairness. We taught them cooperation. We taught them that you you don't win by just getting your side. You you win by all sides rising, all ships rising together. And that used to be the measure, and, and I agree with you. It concerns me. But, but back to our topic for, for today. So we both agree that we're concerned. We both agree that it's probably reasonable to be somewhat pessimistic uh, in, in, in a true compromise, finding a solution here. Uh, at best, I think we could hope that, that it gets, the can gets kicked down the street, but that's not a solution. So back to our nonprofits who still have to pay their bills, still have to succeed in their program. What What is a smart strategy today and probably in the near future? I think I think the critical thing for every nonprofit is revenue diversification. That they, you know, nonprofits are going to have to obviously look to their traditional sources, traditional fundraising. They're going to have to look very carefully at their assets, and they're going to have to figure out whether there aren't additional revenue solutions for them, um, additional um, social enterprise initiatives, additional structures on their board who can bring them into new relationships that they that they have not had in the past. Um, they have to look carefully at what's happening to the overall economies in that of which they're a part and figure out where the new strengths in the economies are and figure out how to intersect those strengths with their own assets. They're going to have to, a former boss of mine used to call it Z-Roth, which is a zero base. They're going to have to zero base what they're do, doing, make no assumptions, um, and and really tear their entire revenue assumption structure apart and rebuild it um, on an expectation that um, that we're going to have an unsteady public financing over the next years and we're going to have an economy that's going to grow. It's going to grow slowly. Employment is going up. Unemployment is going down. Unemployment is going down because the number of people in the workforce <laughs> remains the lowest in history. And the jobs that are being created are jobs that 
don't pay very much. And so I think we have an entirely different economic structure and we have to unbundle the revenue strategy of every nonprofit needs to completely unbundle its revenue strategy and and begin from a point of view that they've got to diversify their revenue in every way possible. And and is that is that going to individual donors, is that going to corporations, foundations, all of the above, and what's likely to succeed? It it, it it applies to all of the above, and it also applies to how you're going to intersect with these new social finance strategies. Um, what are the opportunities for innovation that you can bring into your nonprofit? What are the opportunities for looking at the relationship between your mission and, and social enterprise markets? What kind of skills do you need? I mean, I really think it's business planning, Ted. You know, nonprofit sector is very good at strategic planning, but the reason strategic plans sit on the shelf is because there's no business plan that comes in behind it. And, and wow, that, that, I'm, I'm going to stop you right there and ask you to say that again because, amen, that is such an important issue that is not addressed. And, and the, a strategic plan is important. A strategic plan focuses on mission and vision and, and desired end states, Okay. A business plan says, how am I going to get there? What is the financial structure underneath this? What is the revenue structure underneath this? What is the management structure underneath this? And after you get a business plan together, then you have an operating plan that says, this year, in this time frame, the following people will do the following things and be held accountable for it. And and wow. the nonprofit sector stops at strategic plans they never do business plans, let alone operating plans. And they're simply well, going to have to do it if they're going to be successful in this competitive, highly fragile economy. Absolutely. I'm, I'm just going to quickly share a story. A colleague of mine was just interviewing for a position, a uh, CEO position for an organization, and looking at their planning, uh, she questioned, um, you know, okay, so you have a strategic plan, uh, to raise uh, $10 million in, in a capital campaign, what is the plan to get there? How many donors do you have? So breaking that down, as you were saying, what's the business plan behind that? And the answer was literally, well, it's in the strategic plan. In other words, if we say we're going to raise $10 million, then we're, we're already budgeting it because we're going to raise it. There's no plan to raise it. It's just we said we're going to do it, so we're going to go ahead and start putting the budgets together to spend it, and we haven't even raised it yet. And, but but even beyond that, Ted, the question is not what is the development plan to raise the money. The question is what's the business plan of the organization? What is the business plan for that $10 million once you've raised it? How are you, what is it going to do? How are you going to manage it? What's the product? What's the service? Over what period of time? At what revenue? At what price? And why is the nonprofit sector so far behind why, why is the nonprofit sector so far behind in understanding the importance of this? Because it, it seems to be epidemic. Because we're driven by the nobility of the work. So we've we have never a, been. We have an inward task. line of sight. An inward line of sight. My mission, my vision, my theory of change, my programs. Is it because we've never been held to task, or we simply don't understand the value? I think it's a combination of that. I think it's skills. Um, I think we're uncomfortable in some ways. We're afraid, and, and I'm not arguing. I want to be very clear. I'm not arguing that mission isn't important, and I'm not arguing that the nobility of the work isn't important. I'm just saying that in a competitive world, the discipline of organizational execution Let's not call it business planning if that makes people uncomfortable, and it does make people uncomfortable. You know, if I wanted to be in business, I would have gone in business. I'm in the nonprofit sector. I don't need to think like that. So let's not call it business planning. Let's call it the discipline of organizational execution. And we have to understand that that discipline of execution is as important as the nobility of the work that drives the case for the $10 million. Because well, the donor want to wants to know you can execute. Well, that is if you want to survive. Because hope, no. hope, hope and prayer <laughs> certainly has 
place, but uh, it, it doesn't pay the bills. We do have an email question. Katie in D.C., I think she wants to get down to brass tacks. Maybe it's because she's in D.C. Uh, but she's asking, should I be cutting right now or investing? Can't answer the question. It depends what business you're in. Um, you, you know, what you should be doing is is looking looking at your programs, looking at your resources, looking at your looking at your capabilities, and figuring out what is the fundamental what's going to be the fundamental driver of growth for you. And if the fund and if your fundamental driver of growth in the past has been public resources, then you're going to need to um, you're going to need to invest in private resource mobilization, but you're going to have to look at your assets and figure out uh, figure out what your assets are in a highly competitive resource market to do that. Um, you should be cutting. Um, you should you should be critically looking at every element of your structure and figuring out is is it responding to the market? Not do I believe in it, but is it responding to the market? Is it demonstrably making a difference? And and have the courage to say things that are not demonstrably making a difference may have to go. And this is a time, I think maybe a healthy time, uh, if you agree for nonprofits, to really critically look at what it is that their value is. Uh, is it a mission that still has value, or is it a mission that just has been around for so long? Because uh, right. I think sometimes right. nonprofits exist out of habit. Right. But but the problem with that, Ted, is is that, and, and again, these are not easy issues, and, and I don't mean in any way to to make them easy. The problem is is in many cases not that you know, we talk about nonprofits as though they're things. You know, they're, they're only the sum total of people. And even where executive directors understand these things, many boards don't. You know, people serve on boards because they're passionate about causes. That's why they do it, you know, and there's nothing in it for them otherwise. And so a lot of times it's really the boards that have to be brought along to change, even when an executive director or president understands it. A a board has to be brought along into some of these changes, and that's not always an easy thing. I, I would absolutely agree with you. We've got just a few moments uh, uh, left, Susan, uh, on on this topic of rapid economic change and where nonprofits should be. What, how would you summarize our discussion today, and what um, my listeners should take away from our our time together? I really think the most important thing right now that nonprofits have to do is create an outward line of sight. They have to turn around and face the economy. They have to face their local economy. They have to face the structure of wealth, and they have to figure out what are the indicators of change that they need to pay attention to, and they need to collect that data, and they need to pay attention to what is happening in their local economies, what is happening in the structure of leadership, what is happening um, to wealth, and what is have what is being created in social finance so that they can then turn back to their internal line of sight and figure out how to to meet meet the demands of the market. We have a, a, a quick question here, just here at the end, that uh, just came in. Uh, Tom uh, Nisbet uh, is asking, uh, and, and, and I hope you have uh, some way to answer this, can Canadians donate to U.S.-based charities and receive a Canadian tax deduction? Uh, and I know that that's, that's complicated, but do you have the answer yeah, to that? Yeah, no, I'm not a lawyer. Yes, of course you can donate. Whether or not you get a tax deduction in Canada, I don't know Canadian law. Right, right. But um, I'm sure there are a lot of Canadian uh, Canadian lawyers who'd love for you to pay them to tell you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, I think that uh, there is a website um, that, uh, Tom, we can direct you to. It's called globalphilanthropy.ca. Uh, globalphilanthropy.ca um, is managed by Mark Blumberg. And uh, he's made it his business to help Canadians understand uh, the tax uh, implications of giving outside of Canada. So, uh, Tom, hopefully that helps you. We've got just a, uh, about a minute left. Uh, Susan, um, uh, can you please tell my listeners how they can reach you? You can reach me at S, as in Susan, S. Raymond, R-A-Y-M-O-N-D, at changingourworld.com. 
And if you go to the Changing Our World website, changingourworld.com, you will see a resources button. If you click on that button, there are several dozen white papers and uh, analyses, including our most recent release on the implications of MOOC education for fundraising in the education space. Um, and you can download any of those documents you would like. Terrific. Susan Raymond, Dr. Susan Raymond, thank you for joining us. You're always welcome here on the Nonprofit Coach. Once again, very thought-provoking. Uh, and very informative. Thank you for joining us here. We'll be live next week from BBCon, 12.30 p.m. Eastern on uh, October 1st. Join us there. Join us live. Remember, our podcast on... You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to The Nonprofit Coach. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.